Ebola has killed more than 10,000 people in West Africa, and although it has slowed, the epidemic continues. But despite the global panic Ebola has caused, some fear that the next epidemic could affect far more people if it involves a disease that can spread through the air, like measles or influenza. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Nicole Lurie, the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Dr. Lurie, Bill Gates writes in a recent Perspective article that of all the things that could kill millions of people around the world, the most likely is an epidemic stemming from natural causes or bioterrorism. How does your agency prioritize potential health threats, and does it consider epidemics to be one of the major concerns? Absolutely it does. I think we recognize bioterror threats, and we prepare for them all the time. And we understand that synthetic biology makes that easier to do all the time. We also worry about accidental releases from laboratories where well-intentioned scientists work with dangerous pathogens. So we place a lot of emphasis also on lab safety issues. But I think we all know Mother Nature is a terrific bioterrorist. And whether it was H1N1, whether it was Ebola, whether it's going to be the next emerging disease, we do have to worry about a pandemic. And like Bill Gates, we worry a lot about pandemic influenza or something else that could cause a pandemic of that magnitude. Gates argues that we need a global warning and response system for such outbreaks, like the system that NATO has for response to threats of war. How feasible do you think that kind of international disease response system would be? Well, I think it's critical that we do that. And a huge part for years has been doing better surveillance to detect threats early so that you can prevent avoidable epidemics of one kind or another. And there is increasing momentum beyond just doing this for influenza to do this for infectious diseases broadly. I do want to say, though, that as important as it is to get these early warning systems, which we all agree we need to do, we need to do something when we get that signal. We can't just sit on it. And one of the things that I think that happened in Ebola is that the world sat on it for way too long. Another issue with Ebola is that it has focused attention on the health systems in West Africa that were struggling even before the epidemic began. How can the United States and other developed countries help poorer countries build up their basic health capacities so that they can contain these epidemics where they start? Well, I think both this early warning system and developing this health system capacity are absolutely critical. To that end, the United States and 40 other countries are involved in a broad partnership called the Global Health Security Agenda, in which more developed countries and less developed countries work together to commit to taking actions to prevent, detect, and respond to diseases more effectively. This is relatively new, but the size of it makes me think it has a lot of potential both to strengthen the public health and the basic healthcare infrastructure in countries around the world. And I think Ebola has shown us just how critical it is that we get this done. Gates also argues that high bandwidth internet and Wi-Fi capacity is needed in key areas of these developing countries to facilitate data reporting and the coordination of personnel during an outbreak. Is the development of that kind of infrastructure something that the U.S. government is looking at or the public health community in general? Well, it's fair to say that communication is absolutely central to running any kind of response, whether it's domestic or international, whether it's related to infectious diseases or any other kind of humanitarian disaster. The infrastructure that uses cell phone technology 
to do disease reporting and to get information out, to quell rumors, to do those things, has been in place and used around the world, even in really resource-poor areas. But it's true that you need much more broadband Internet capacity, both to transmit information back, to manage and coordinate a response, and to communicate effectively. One of the things that we saw was that there was very little way to get information from the hot zone, whether it was medical records or information about the status of disease out of the hot zone to people who could analyze it and make sense of it in one way or another. Satellite-connected tablets and other things were few and far between. So whether it was just about patient management, whether it was about surveillance and disease detection, or whether it was the basic work of coordinating the logistics and operations of this very complicated response, the lack of Internet and broadband technology really hampered us. Good emergency managers, when they get to the scene, place a high priority on what they call interoperable communications, and they do this so that people involved in all aspects of a response can communicate with one another and coordinate. And again, I think he's right that that's going to be an essential infrastructure piece to responding to any future epidemic. During the Ebola epidemic, it took scientists some time to ramp up their research on both vaccines and potential treatments. How do we make sure there are systems in place so that once a new threat is identified, research can begin immediately? I think that's a great question, and I would agree that we did not organize the scientific aspects of our response as quickly as we might have. Part of that was that we were dealing with a dangerous pathogen, but part of it is that we haven't been organized in a way that prepositions anything from case report forms to a way to systematically collect information about patients who have been infected to get it out of an infectious zone to a place that it can be analyzed. There's not great scientific agreement on what those protocols should be, on how they should be developed, on what should be tested. Similarly, there are all kinds of challenges in doing things like sharing virus specimens and analyzing them jointly. There's a pretty good system for doing this for influenza, not so much for doing it for other infectious diseases. In the case of Ebola, there was very broad disagreement on the kinds of clinical trials that might have been appropriate, how to organize them and get them done quickly. So what you saw were people with very different ideas about not only how to collect information, but how to test new vaccines or new therapies. And so you've ended up with a bunch of so-called clinical trials in which a drug or a therapeutic might be given to a bunch of people in a pretty uncontrolled setting single-arm, open-label administration. These things have yielded really equivocal results that are next to impossible to interpret, largely because they've been given in the context of medical care, and so it's difficult to know how to proceed with any kind of results. Before the next pandemic or next outbreak, there really needs to be broad agreement on the kinds of approaches to this that are appropriate, both from an ethical point of view and a scientific point of view, and a really concerted effort to get everybody involved in getting answers to important questions in the shortest amount of time. So there's a lot, a lot of work to do in this area. I think it's very doable. I think 
the scientific community around the world has seen the challenges to this and that there are ways to go forward. I'd also say that people who are taking care of patients day to day in an infectious disease situation like Ebola are not the people who you can or should rely on to do the research. They, in fact, are doing important humanitarian and clinical work. What you need is a cadre of people working in collaboration with and alongside of them to get that work done. Gates makes two suggestions that may be scientific stretches. The first, he says that it should be possible to make diagnostic tests, drugs, and vaccine platforms that can be adapted for use against a variety of different pathogens. Do you think that's possible? And if so, what's keeping us from doing it? Back in 2010, we took a big look at what we call our medical countermeasures enterprise here at HHS and across government. And in some sense, we came to the same conclusion. And we did a pretty big pivot at that time. We moved away from a one-bug, one-drug approach to making countermeasures to look at platform technologies, whether it's in vaccines, whether it's in monoclonal antibodies, whether it's in diagnostics that could make countermeasures and diagnostics faster. So I'd say this is a work in progress. We've made more progress in influenza, perhaps, than in some of the other areas. But if you look at how quickly we got from dedicating ourselves to getting an Ebola vaccine or monoclonal antibodies to where we are now with clinical trials underway for both of these, I think we believe that it very much is possible. We're partway through building a series of what we call Centers of Innovation and Advanced Development and Manufacturing exactly for this purpose, so that they could provide core services to developers of vaccines or therapeutics, whether it's access to animal models or a facility in which to make pilot-scale amounts of material. They should be able to surge manufacture influenza vaccines or other kinds of vaccines in the event of a pandemic. All of this stuff is expensive and relies very much on public-private partnerships between the government, private sector entities, and industry. But there's a lot of activity in this area. You mentioned influenza vaccine, and that's, in fact, the second potential stretch. Would it be possible, as Gates suggests, to develop a single influenza vaccine that protects against every strain, season after season? Well, that's been the holy grail, right? Just like there's a holy grail for HIV vaccine, there has been a holy grail for a universal flu vaccine. I think we're getting closer and closer to that. We understand now much more about how influenza viruses are put together and what parts of the virus are stable over time so that we may be able to target vaccines to those parts to give longer lasting protection or protection across many, many strains of vaccine. So we need to get to the point that we can have a universal vaccine on the way, we need to make vaccines faster, and we need to make them more effective every year for seasonal vaccine and then for a pandemic. Again, we've moved through from egg-based technologies to cell-based technologies to recombinant technologies. We've gone from taking many, many months to make flu vaccines. We reduced it recently from six months to maybe under four months to make vaccines. We're getting faster all the time. But even after you make a vaccine, it still needs to be tested. It needs to be manufactured at large scale with hundreds of millions of doses. And you need a system to give it to people. We can't forget that part. But I think we're on a very good path to get there.
Finally, you spoke about the importance of communication, and Gates writes that in the next phase of disease preparedness, we have to have effective public communication that coordinates messages from governments, non-governmental agencies, the media. Specifically in terms of Ebola, is the U.S. government reviewing the role that communications played in its response to the epidemic? Absolutely. I think we're reviewing many aspects of our response to the epidemic. But effective communication is essential to managing any kind of emergencies, including infectious disease outbreaks of any kind. The principles of risk communication are absolutely key. So communicating regularly, saying what you know, being clear about the limits of what you don't know, not overpromising, being sure that you give people the information they need to protect themselves. Communicating advice and guidance becomes critical in communication as a public health tool to manage risk. It's also the case that social media and this 24-hour instant cycle presents both new opportunities and new challenges. So that we constantly now try to monitor the social media conversations that are going on so that we have a sense of what are people thinking, what are people feeling, try to get ahead of that in the messaging, but also to be looking for rumors and misinformation so that we can work quickly to quell that. At the end of the day, we want to have the right balance of getting people to be cautious and take things seriously so they can take effective action, but not creating so much panic and fear that it gets in the way of people acting rationally, as we've seen in Ebola and other kinds of outbreaks. That information and that balance is really, really critical. I'd also say that it's important that the messengers here be trusted and particularly for readers or listeners of the journal, they have important opportunities to play roles in their communities. They are often trusted figures who people will listen to and can really go a long way to explaining and communicating, whether it's clinically or scientifically, about what's going on. Again, to help supplement or amplify and help people get ahead of the messages and deal with the fear. Thank you, Dr. Lurie. 